For many of us, um, <clears throat> these verses that we're looking at uh, last week and today, uh, we've heard these verses all of our life. We've read them on Christmas cards. We we become so familiar with these passages of Scripture that they're just kind of, you know, they're there. They're in the Bible, and every Christmas somebody will read these, and the pastor will preach on them. And, you know, I, I come to realize this week that these particular verses, uh, chapter 1 and chapter 2 particular Matthew, uh, should be something that we run to often to, to stir up our hope. Because we see God being faithful to His promises here. And if God's faithful here, He's always faithful. And everything that He's promised will come to pass. Uh, for many of us looking at uh, these verses here, uh, some, the focus seems to be upon what they would call three kings. You know, we have a song, We Three Kings, right? Um, even though the passage never refers to them as kings, we have a song that refers to them as kings. Instead, they're referred to as wise men. Some of you have a translation that calls them magi. They were, they were not kings, and they were, uh, there may not have been just three of them. The passage only says that they gave three types of gifts, not just three gifts. We assume three gifts. It must have been three kings or three wise men. The best guess is that they were uh, men from a prominent class of um, royal advisors, if you will, to a Persian king. Uh, These particular men were very smart, obviously wise men, that's why they're called that. Uh, They would study science and astronomy, astrology and religious matters. They were very smart, wise, intellectual men. And they're not really the main focus of the passage. It's always, the song is perfectly alright, but it's always fascinated me. Uh, That seems to be what the song uh, evolved from the three kings here, supposedly three kings. Uh, That's not the main focus here. Matthew's focus appears to be on kings, but the kings are King Herod and King Jesus. Herod, by the authority of the Roman government, he's been made king over Israel. But as we saw last week, the true king, the rightful king, the king who will rule forever and ever, is a king from the line of King David. And that king is Emmanuel, God with us. The king is King Jesus. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. The wise men are in this story to show us, listen, how to respond to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's what they're in here for. They're to show us how to respond. The wise men respond to the light God gave them. He gave them a light, right? The star. He gave them a light. And they respond to the light that God gave them by seeking Jesus. They were clear in their purpose according to verse 2. We have come to worship. That was their goal. That was their purpose. And that's the purpose of Matthew having them in here is to point us to the response that they have toward Christ. Whether they're absolutely clear, excuse me, whether these three wise men were absolutely clear on the divine nature of Jesus or not, we don't know. But their words and their actions point to more than the worship one would pay to an earthly king. Read carefully and pay attention. They gave no worship to Herod at all. But when it came to Jesus, it was worship. 
That's always fascinated me. Herod's a king, but they give no acknowledgement to him at all in kind of worship. But when it comes to Jesus, that's where they're going. That's where they are headed. So if you're looking at your handout, the main idea here is God reveals Jesus to the nations. The nations being Gentiles. These three wise men are Gentiles. They represent the nations of the world. Gentiles. God reveals Jesus to the nations, to the Gentiles, and they respond with worship. God reveals Jesus to the nations, and they respond with worship. Here's what I would say. We too should respond to Jesus with worship, because as we saw in the video this morning, people from every tribe, language, and people group, and nation will come to King Jesus. God has promised that's going to be the case. And here we see the beginning. The gospel initially came for the people of Israel, but we know in reading the Scriptures, God says that Israel would be what? Stiff-necked, hard-headed people. They would try to reach God in their own way, and God would take the gospel from them and send it to who? You and I, the Gentiles. But here we see it shown to the Gentiles in the very beginning. If you're looking at your handout there, uh, verses 1 through 2, we kind of outline this quite simply. We see the arrival of the wise men. The arrival of the wise men. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Verse 1 begins by giving us the birthplace of Jesus. Bethlehem of Judea. So what's the big deal? Uh, There are two reasons why this is a big deal. Number one, verse 6, gives a prophecy that the Messiah, the Savior, will be born where? In Bethlehem. This happens, why? Because God said it was going to happen. And Bethlehem would be the place where Jesus would be born. The birth of Jesus in Bethlehem fulfills another promise, another prophecy from God. Second, there was another king who was born in Bethlehem as well. Anybody want to guess who the other king was that was born in Bethlehem? David. You think that's just an accident that that's the case? David is born in Bethlehem. Why would that be significant? It's significant because Jesus is the heir to what? King David's throne, according to the covenant that God made with King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So notice again in verse 1, who was ruling at the time? In the days of Herod the king. Now, based on what we know about uh, the rightful king being from the line of David, we know Herod doesn't belong as king. He's not the rightful heir. And as I said earlier, Herod was put in place uh, as the king of Judea by the Roman Empire. The most well-known thing about Herod is that he was extremely paranoid. Extremely paranoid. He was in constant worry over someone taking over his throne. He even went so far to protect his throne that he had his wife and his two sons executed because he thought they were plotting to overthrow him. That's paranoid, right? With that in mind, look at verse 1 again. Behold. Every word of Scripture is extremely important. Every word of Scripture is inspired by God. But when you see the word behold, it's, a, it's kind of like you need to really pay attention here. Not that you shouldn't be paying attention before this, but you really need to pay attention here. It says, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Some of you have translations. As I said earlier, had the, the word magi. The magi refers, as I said, to the study of astrology and the movements of stars, which, by the way, is a practice that God told the people in uh, Israel in the Old Testament, don't get involved in that. 
I think Matthew's not uh, countering God's command, but he's showing how God in His grace drew these pagan Gentiles to worship Jesus. The wise men, the, the magi, as I said earlier, they, when, you, when you think wise men, when you, you see magi, you think Gentiles. From this point on, the rest of your Christian life, when you see that, you think Gentiles. Jesus would be a Savior for all the people. That's what that's pointing us to here. And then in verse 2, the wise men have a question. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Notice what the wise men say. They don't say, where is he who has been born to become king of the Jews? You notice that? They didn't say he's been born to become king of the Jews, but he's been born what? He is the king of the Jews. They say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? The wise men were saying that Jesus is already the king. He's not going to become king. No one's going to make him king. He's already the king. Now how... How was it that these wise men came to be in Jerusalem? Notice what it says there. We saw a star when it rose. And the response to that is, we've come to worship Him. Remember what I said about these magi? What was one of the things they did? They studied the the stars and they they followed a particular star to where? To Jerusalem. And they came to look for who? The King of the Jews. Now, here's the question I I, I sit and ask. How did they know that this star was Jesus' star and that it meant He was King of the Jews? How did they know that? The text doesn't give us the detail, but I'm kind of inclined to think that God used a star to speak to the stargazers. You know, in the Muslim world, Muslims put a lot of emphasis on dreams and visions. If you listen to how a lot of Muslims come to faith in Christ, a lot of times... They had a dream. And in that dream was Jesus. So God uses what's familiar to them to send them the vision of who He is. And He used what was familiar to these men here. He sent them a star to the stargazers. It appears that they were not seeking God. Right? They weren't seeking God, but God did what? He revealed Himself to them in this way. Romans chapter 3 verse 11 plainly states, There is none who seeks after God. What we have here is a demonstration of grace and that God seeks the sinner. You stop and think about when you got saved. Were you seeking God? The Bible says most of us are running so far, so fast away from God, but God in His grace reached out and pulled us. You might say that, that sounds strange. It's no more strange than the eternal God becoming a man so that He might, he might save His people from their sins. No more strange than that. So here's a way of application here. You may be thinking, that, that sounds all well and good that we, we do not and cannot seek God until He first seeks us, but what if He hasn't yet sought me? You heard me say that. We don't seek God, but God seeks us. And you may be here this morning saying, but uh, what if He hasn't sought me yet? What, what am I supposed to do until He does? Do I sit around and wait for a special star in the sky? No, that wouldn't be the good application here. Here's the answer. The fact that you're here right now hearing the gospel preached shows that God is seeking you. God is seeking you. The fact that you are here. God's most common way of seeking lost people is through the preaching of His Word. 
You know, if you're here last week and you, you heard the Word of God preached and heard that God kept His promise that He would send His Savior, and if you've never turned from your sin and trusted in Jesus, God was seeking you last week if you've never trusted Christ. God was seeking you last week. You're here today, and because you're hearing His Word preached, He's seeking you right now if you've never trusted in Christ. The important question for you becomes, how are you, how are you responding to that? None of us are here by accident today. It's a divine appointment that God put us all here. If you're here lost without Christ today, God is seeking you. That's why you're here today. God is seeking you. And the Bible says your response should be to turn from your sin and trust in Christ. God in His mercy sought you and put you here today to hear the gospel. Verse 2. The wise men had a purpose for coming to Jerusalem. We we saw the star when it rose, and we have come to worship Him. This is what I see as the, the, the focal point here. They give us what we're to do in response to Christ. Matthew tells us that the right response to the new king is worship. Remember, they didn't worship Herod, right? They are worshiping Jesus. And keep that in mind when we get to Herod here. Herod wasn't ignorant of the fact that they didn't worship Him. They'd come to worship the new king. And Herod's what? Extremely paranoid. Matthew tells us that this is the right response to King Jesus. Respond to Jesus with worship. And here's some application for us. Matthew's reminding us that the Christ child is not simply an occasion for a sentiment or admiration. He's an object of worship. God expects His Son, the divine Savior, to be worshipped. That's what He was doing to these wise men. He was revealing to them Jesus. Here's my question. Have you come to give Him worship today? Is that why you're here? Have you, have you come to adore Him? Is, that, is there a growing delight in your, your heart for, for Jesus? That's the nature of people who have been saved by God's grace. That is the nature that God puts in those who are born again. They have a longing. They have a desire to delight in Him and they pursue Him. They're preoccupied with Jesus. They glory in Jesus. They delight in Jesus. They adore Him. They worship Him. He is first in their affections and in their hearts. You're going, man, that's an awful extreme. Well, that's what the Bible says our response should be to those who profess Christ. That's the natural response of someone who's trusted in Jesus. And my question for myself a lot of days, and my question for you is, is that, is that us? To be honest with you, some days, that ain't me. You know who gets in the way of that? It becomes about me. Right? It becomes about you. The natural response to Jesus is that He is everything. We're we're preoccupied with Him. Uh, Secondly, look at verses 3 and 4. Herod's response. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. What's wrong with King Herod here? He's what? Troubled, right? Why is he troubled? They didn't worship me. I'm the king. They come to worship this new guy. Based on what we know about Herod, how do you think he's going to respond? Somebody's head's coming off. The word trouble here has the idea of being greatly agitated, having an inward turmoil. 
Herod knows just enough about the Jews. He knew that they were looking for a Messiah. They were looking for a king. He knew that. A king whom they thought would defeat their enemy. And the present king was what? The enemy. This troubled Herod. He believed this new king would be a threat to his throne. What does Herod do to those who threaten him? They're gone. Notice as well there, not only was I laugh when I read this, but it's not funny. Herod was troubled, and then what does it say? All Jerusalem was troubled with him. Why do you think Jerusalem was troubled? They know that Herod's extremely what? Paranoid. They knew he would do whatever it took to keep his throne. I'd be scared too. Knowing Herod and how he reacts to threats, being paranoid, if I lived there, I'd be troubled as well. It's kind of like saying, you know, if mama ain't happy, there ain't nobody happy. If Herod ain't happy, nobody's going to be happy. If the king's not happy, nobody's going to be happy. They were troubled. And in verse 4, Herod gathers the chief priests and the scribes and religious leaders, those who knew the Old Testament very well. And he asked them where the Christ was to be born. Now, we know a little bit about Herod. What do you think Herod's motive was in asking this question? Was it to worship? What do you think he wanted to do? This king, I want to know where he's at because I'm going to go after him. He's a threat to the throne. That's Herod's response. But notice in Verses 5 and 6, God's promise. Here we have the answer to Herod's question. Remember, he's asked the question. And they told him in Bethlehem of Judea for... That could also be the word because. He's been born in Bethlehem of Judea for because. So it was written by the prophets. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Why was Jesus born in Bethlehem? <clears throat> because God revealed that to the prophets, and the prophets proclaimed it to the, to the people that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. That's why Jesus was born. Now the chief priests and the scribes told Herod, what did they tell him? They told him what the Scripture said. They told him what the Old Testament foretold, that the Messiah would come out of Bethlehem, Judea. And what was it that we learned in verse 1 concerning the place where Jesus was born? He was born there. Matthew once again shows us something. Anyone want to guess what that something is that Matthew's trying to show us here? God is a God who keeps His promises. This is no secondary issue here that Jesus is born where He's born. It's God keeping His promises. What He says He will do. What He promises, you can bank your life on it. Remember last week, Numbers 23, 19? Do we remember what it said? God is not a man that He should what? <coughs> Lie. Or a son of man that He should change His mind. Has He said and will He not do it? Or has He spoken and will He not fulfill it? Titus chapter 1, verse 2. In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10 says, It is impossible for God to lie. Jesus was born in Bethlehem because God says that's where He's going to be born. That's the prophecy. God cannot lie. 
And all that He says is true. And all of it will come to pass. Listen, if God said a Messiah was come and He was so specific that He was going to be born here and that happens and we see that happening and we know that God can't lie, if God promises us that one day a new heavens and a new earth is coming, what do we need to be banking our lives on? God said it's going to happen. It's going to happen. The Old Testament passages that the priests and the scribes quote from are Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And it promises that even though Bethlehem is small and unimportant, it says it would by no means be the least among the rulers of Judah. Micah is saying that this small, <clears throat> unimportant city of Bethlehem would not be least among the cities because from you shall come a what? A ruler. In fact, this, it says here this ruler would be so great that he would shepherd all of Israel. As a result of Bethlehem's standing would be elevated from a small village to a famous place, the famous birthplace of a king. be like saying that Jesus was going to be born in Castell or Centerville. Everybody go, no, no king going to be born there. Not one's going to rule the world anyway. Notice something very interesting about this situation. These religious leaders who knew of the promised Messiah aren't interested enough about this report to travel six short miles to Bethlehem to look into it for themselves. They never went. They never made a decision themselves to go. These religious men were not the least interested to go and see the Messiah for themselves. I don't know about you. And again, I need to be careful here. I don't want to say I would do better than they would. Don't you find it interesting that they didn't make haste to go see what they had been telling people for all these years? And I want to make an application point there. Is it possible for people in the church, church members to be just religious people, people who have the Scriptures and yet they are spiritually blind? Yes. Is it possible to be religious people in possession of divine revelation and yet be spiritually blind? Yes. I also think that we, believers, church, can be spiritually dull. I put myself in that as well. We, we need to pray and ask God to revive us by His Spirit and open our eyes that we would see Jesus. And we would delight in Him and love Him. And that we would trust in Him. That we would believe in Him. That we would hope in Him. That we would treasure Him. That we would respond to Jesus with lives of worship toward Jesus. You remember in the video there this morning, David, the director of the IMB, says, This is living. Remember him saying that? This is is living. It's what we were created for. To be a part of the spreading of the gospel. And what did he say about the rewards? They outweigh the risk that we can take to make sure the gospel gets to people. To make sure that we're loving and adoring Jesus. Listen, if we love and adore Christ, if we treasure Him, then we're going to treasure what He treasures, right? And that's His people and the nations coming to know Him. Look at verses 7 and 8. Notice Herod's plan. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And at that point you ought to be going, yeah, right. 
He's coming. They need to worship. In verse 7, Herod secretly calls the wise men. That will be a clue for us. He secretly calls them. It appears that he doesn't want others to think that he's concerned about the new king. If you're, if you're the king, you never want to let on that you're worried about somebody else. It, it, it's a way to downplay the importance of what the wise men were proclaiming. He secretly called them in. Verse 7 reveals uh, Herod's true motive. It says, Herod ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. In other words, he wanted to know when they first saw the star. Herod's trying to discern what? The age of this new king to see what he was up against. When did you first come to be aware of this king? Next in verse 8, he sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go and search diligently for the child. When you found him, bring word to me that I too may come and worship him. He wants to know the exact location and the identity of the child. Notice that Herod calls him what? Look at that verse. What does Herod call him? The child, not the king. That's very significant. Herod's saying what? I'm the king. He's not the king. He's not ready to admit that anyone but himself should be king. Jesus is king. Listen, this is what some of us need to get in our minds as those who profess Christ. Jesus is Lord whether we acknowledge that or not. He's Lord of our lives. We may live like He's not, but He's Lord. And next, Herod gives the wise men a, a false reason for wanting to know the location the identity of the child. Verse 8, When you have found Him, bring me word that I too may come and worship Him. See, Herod doesn't want to let the wise men on his motives that he's going to do what to Jesus? He's going to take him out. How do we know that Herod wants to kill the child? Look at verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem in all the region who were two years old or under, according to this time that he had ascertained from the wise men. We'll talk about that next week. But he has no intention to worship Jesus. Verses 9 through 11. Notice the response to Jesus. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose and went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. What does God do once again? He leads the wise men, how? By the star to the very place where Jesus was. Verse 10, when they saw the star, what did they do? They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. For the second time, Matthew tells us what these wise men came to do. They, they came to worship the new king. Matthew is telling us, some, some interesting things here. First, he's telling us something extraordinary about the baby who's been placed in a feeding trough. Matthew's telling us that he's God who became a man. He's very God of very God, but God not created. And he's to be worshipped. Matthew doesn't give details about the wise man. He doesn't discuss the stars. He, says that, he just says they worshipped. Here's some application for us. On the first Christmas, what did they do? They worshipped. Why? Because that's at the heart of what this season's about. It's about worship. Not that we just worship during this time, but this is a season 
that we would be thinking, are we worshiping? Are we pointing others to come to Christ that they may worship Him? You've probably heard this before. You know why, you know why missions exist? Because worship doesn't. God wants, He's going to draw many millions of people, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation to worship Him. So therefore, in order for worship to happen, missions has to happen. Matthew says, there's only one who deserves to be worshipped because He's greater than all. Let me, let me ask this. I, I asked myself these questions this week. Is, is worship of Jesus, is that the goal? And I'm talking to Christians here. Do, do you, again, adore Christ? Is there delight in your heart for Him? That's the response of those who have received the gift of God. That's the response of those who have received grace. Is Jesus first in your heart? Also, Matthew's telling us about Jesus being revealed to Gentiles. And again, I, think, I said this earlier, the wise men are not Jews, they're Gentiles. God revealed Jesus to who? Gentiles. These wise men came from the east. <coughs> It'd be modern day Iran or Iraq. That's where they would have come from. Matthew's saying that Jesus is not just the Savior of the Jews. He's not just the Savior of Americans. He's not just the Savior of the middle class white people. He's the Savior of the world. Revelation chapter 7 verse 9 says that people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation will come to worship Jesus. That's a promise, right? And if God makes a promise, what's going to happen? They're going to come. People are going to be saved. He's the Savior of the world. Verse 11. (coughs) Notice there. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts. Here are the gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. According to verse 11, Jesus was not where anymore? In the manger. It appears that Joseph and Mary were now living in a house. It appears that a period of time has passed since Jesus' birth. And by the time the wise men get there, Jesus was already one or two years old. I think I've heard me say this before. You go by the nativity scene and the wise men are there. eh. They were never at the stable. That throws a monkey wrench in it, right? In our nativity scenes. Verse 10 told us the wise men did what? They rejoiced exceedingly with joy. Verse 11 says they fell down in worship and they offered Him gifts. They opened their treasures and offered. They presented to Jesus gold and frankincense and myrrh. These are kingly gifts. They are valuable gifts. Jesus deserves royal honor. These weren't just, you know, let's run by the drugstore and get them something right quick. Get them a gift card. That always works, right? Get them a gift card. We forgot them. Get them a... These are royal gifts. Jesus deserves honor. Matthew shows us Jesus receiving kingly honor. He's receiving honor from who? The Gentiles, the nations. And here's the application for us. The wise men's response was to rejoice, worship, and do what? Give generously. <coughs> That sounds like a proper response for us to make to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, does it not? Well, the wise men have found Jesus. 
Now here's my question for you. What will happen if they go back to Jerusalem and report to King Herod the child's identity? What will happen? What's King Herod going to do? What's going to happen to Jesus? That'd be bad, wouldn't it? Jesus is the Savior, right? And you, Some of you are thinking, oh, but He would die, right? He would die for our sins as a baby. Yeah, but you're missing something. God could, have, God could have killed Jesus that day and His death would atone for sins, but you're missing something. Jesus had not yet, yet lived a perfect life in your place. He had to live a perfect life in your place before He died for your sins. Herod would have surely killed Him. And God did what? He thwarted that plan, right? Look at verse 12, God's plan. And being warned in the dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country another way. God warns the wise men by means of a dream not to go back to Herod. God tells them to go a different way. Go a different way back to your country. God protects what? Jesus from Herod. But He also protects His plan of redemption for you and me. Listen to me. God's plan is not going to fail. He intervened. He didn't go, oh, I need to do something. God knew this before the foundation of the world that this day was going to come. And He intervenes and He protects His plan of redemption for you and me. If the wise men go back to Herod, there's no cross, there's no empty tomb, there's no perfect life lived to be credited to us. There's no salvation. God has always, in keeping His promise, that Jesus would save His people from their sins. Do you rejoice that God can be trusted? Do you rejoice over God's sovereign control of all things? And here's what I would tell you as a means of application. As I sat and looked over these verses this week and thinking about the last week, I was meditating upon the promises of God. What's that song we sing? Standing on the promises of God. Meditate upon the promises of God as you do thank Him for His faithfulness. And second, compare your response to Jesus to the response of the wise men. Thank God for being faithful to His promises. And then secondly, respond to Jesus the way the wise men do. Rejoicing, worshiping, and offering Him what is valuable. And here, here, here's what I want to you know, apply to myself and us as a church as well. Will you take this Christmas to rejoice that God sent you a Savior to take away your sin? This is, this is the perfect time of year, Christmas and Easter. This is the best time for us to ever share the gospel. Maybe you run into someone and, and you know, this time of year people's talking about what? Christmas. You know, that's kind of what's on people's minds. The door's wide open for us to share the gospel with people. Will you take this Christmas to rejoice that God sent a Savior to take away your sin? And will you share that with others? Finally, in this text, God calls you, Christian, to use your life to make the praise of Jesus known among people everywhere. That means your family, your job, your school, your relationships are to be used for the advancement of the gospel. Every believer has a responsibility of spreading the gospel to the ends of the earth. And Wednesday night, we talked about, and we saw in a video, how we were exhorted 
And not that you've not been exhorted to do this before, how we are exhorted to pray for the advance of the gospel. We are to pray that people in this community come to know Christ. On Wednesday nights, I put on the prayer list that we're to pray for lost in our community, for opportunities to share the gospel, wisdom to see them, and courage to take those opportunities. You know why we pray for that in particular? It's because our praying is a part of God saving those people. We get to be a part of people in this community coming to Christ just by praying for them and then by sharing. But, you know, we talk about how we give money to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering so that the gospel can go to the nations. And, and we're talking about praying. And sometimes we think, okay, we can pray. What's the big deal? You don't realize that God works through your prayers. You want to be involved in the gospel in Iran and Iraq? Pray for people in Iran and Iraq to come to Christ. And you might say, is it that simple? We're simple people. God gives us simple things to do. Pray for the gospel to go forward. Every believer has a responsibility of spreading the gospel to the ends of the earth. Let's pray.